0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. download it today at the apple app store or google play hunt stand upgrade your arsenal
1: you're listening to the average conservationist podcast brought to you by go hunt and in partner with two percent for conservation sign up today to become an insider at gohunt.com two percent for conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife 1% But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, Today on the podcast, I am joined by Seth Spears, and Seth is the founder and CEO of 2% Certified Rewild Gear, Uh, and Rewild Gear makes minimalistic outdoor uh, gear uh, for You know, really, whether you're a hunter, an angler, a backpacker, just a general outdoor enthusiast, um, they make some some top notch quality gear um, that they believe is meant to, um, you know, keep you in the outdoors and give you the basic tools. Uh, the, their, their gear gives you, they're the basic tools, um, you know, to help you get outdoors, to help shorten, uh, that, or, you know, lessen that barrier of entry. Uh, and you know, the gear is high quality so that you're, uh, as Seth says, uh, during the episode, buy once, cry once. Uh, so that way it's not something that you're constantly having to replace. Uh, and then is also hopefully something that can be passed down from generation to generation. Um we talk about, you know, really how Seth and his uh, three brothers that own and run the company uh, were introduced to the outdoors, Uh, you know, what the outdoors really means to them as a family, Uh, some of the cool experiences that Seth has been able to share, not only with his sons, uh, but with his father as well uh, at deer camp uh, down there in Kentucky, uh, where they spend a lot of their time uh, recreating. Uh, We also get to really talk about Kind of the the outdoors and the natural world as a whole, and a lot of the changes uh, that we're seeing, uh, whether it's through uh, urban sprawl and what that's doing to the wildlife population in certain areas, um, some of the uh, genetics uh, the. The altering of genetics with maybe like certain fruits and vegetables that are being done and just kind of this totality of an effect that us as humans are are having on the outdoors and on wildlife and how we can really help minimize that as much as possible and try to keep our wild places wild. Um, Really cool episode. Seth uh, offers a lot of insight into a lot of the things that are kind of Plaguing, I guess you could say, um, you know, the outdoors and, you know, gives you, you know, kind of asks some questions, uh, some big picture questions that, you know, really Seth and I didn't have answers for, but certainly make you think and hopefully want to, you know, investigate things on your own and see what it is that you can do um, to try to help kind of minimize uh, our our footprint and really keep our wild places wild. So episode 61, Seth Spears. Uh, Then see, uh, today's episode is actually brought to you by Wild Rivers Coffee Co. And Marshall and Sammy, uh, the owners of Wild Rivers Coffee, uh, are super passionate about a few things. Uh, specifically coffee and the outdoors. Uh, And that's why at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that their coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Um, Like many of the people on this podcast, Wild Rivers is also a proud member and partner of 2% for Conservation. And they believe in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why everything that you purchase from Wild Rivers Coffee, a portion of the proceeds is being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. Conservation organizations like Trout Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Ducks Unlimited, and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So head over to WildRiversCoffeeCo.com where you can order your fresh roasted beans. Uh, They have some really cool handmade mugs, uh, a ton of sweet merchandise. Uh, And right now, actually, uh, through the end of the summer, if you buy their bundle uh, coffee, which is actually uh, one of each one of their their blends, uh, you're going to save 10% off your order. Um, no coupon code or anything necessary. But let's say you just want to order you know, some merchandise and maybe just a bag of coffee. Uh, when you're at checkout, use the promo code, and this is all caps, FISH underscore WILDLIFE, and you're going to save 10% off your order there as well. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com and use the promo code, all caps, FISH underscore WILDLIFE, and save at checkout. All right, joining me today on the podcast, I have the founder and CEO of Two Percent Certified Rewild Gear, Seth Spears.
2: Seth, how are you, man? I am great, Marcus. How about you?
1: I'm glad doing well. Here. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, <clears throat> I know I'd originally reached out to David, and his schedule didn't work, so he he put me in touch with you, and uh, yeah, we were able to make this happen. So I'm excited to learn more about the company.
2: Yeah, totally glad to be here. This will be fun. Yeah. So
1: <clears throat> first, uh, if you've had a chance to listen to any of the podcast, or, or well, either way. I kind of like to establish a little bit of a baseline um in terms of how really uh you know yourself and I know you run the company with your with three of your other brothers so how was it that you guys were kind of introduced to the outdoors so going all the way back
2: Yeah um it's and honestly it's just been in our blood since we were born um my parents none of them they were not really super into the outdoors uh which is funny um However, all of us siblings, there's actually six siblings in the family. Okay. Um, and I'm the oldest. And then um, the other the three brothers that are involved with the company, along with me, uh, Josh, Adam and David. Um we also have a younger brother, Joe, and a sister who's right underneath me, Maria. Um we all just love being outside, love being in the outdoors, camping, backpacking, um, splunking rock climbing, uh, hunting, you name it. It's, I I don't know. We just grew up um, wanting to be outside all the time. Um, In the summer, we all swam competitively and love being around the water. Um, We go hiking whenever we could. Um, So it was just something from a very early age that we just really, really enjoyed.
1: Yeah. I think the, I was talking to another guest about this uh, in terms of You know, how how we grew up as kids in in terms of, you know, the things that we did, you know, where it was almost like, especially if you grew up, you know, around woods or around the outdoors at all. I mean, just kind of in in close proximity, it was almost like your parents would say, hey, just go play. Go play in the woods, you know, do what you want to do. And then just, you know, make sure you're coming back for dinner. So whether they gave you a watch to wear or you just... You know, you, you just guessed at what time it was and what time you should be coming home or your parents were uh, yeah. driving around looking for you to corral you in the car. It's, uh, it's funny how, how times have changed in that regard.
2: Yeah, um, and I wouldn't say that my parents were like that. My mother could be a little bit strict and controlling and wanted to know where we were at all times. Um, however, you know, if you we were in the backyard playing, um, it, it was fine. And we kind of grew up in the suburbs um, and it, there wasn't a whole lot of woods around there however anytime there was a tree we would be climbing it um <laughs> there, we had this uh big silver maple in the backyard and you couldn't keep me out of that damn thing like i would be at the very top freaking everybody out you're gonna die oh my gosh what are you doing climbing so high um and so you know there have always had an affinity just for trees and nature in that regard i think one of the things that really helped um build that love for the outdoors though. Um, and just being in nature, uh, well, two things for myself personally, uh, when I was a, when I was a kid, uh, probably in kindergarten or first grade, maybe second grade. Um, so we were all homeschooled. Okay. Um, and so there was a book that my mother had used for kind of like the natural sciences. It was about, um, being a naturalist, and it showed like insects and bugs and animals and identifying like flora and fauna and things like that. And I just remember from a very early age being fascinated by it um, and, and just kind of the natural world. Uh, and so I think that helped kind of inspire my own love. And I would say for my siblings as well, I don't know if that had the same impact on them. Uh, but then when, let's see, when I think I was 10, 10 or 11, um, My parents bought seven acres of woods, um, probably about five miles from our house. Okay. And so it was, we called it the baby farm and it was just this little patch of, of land of woods that backed onto all this other land and across from like a cave. Uh Um, and so we would go over there and just hike and we would go camping and just, you know, try to get back to our Aboriginal roots, if you will. Um, I mean we would play paintball in those woods and one of my brothers nearly took my eye out <laughs> one time with a paintball um, but then yeah we'd go splunking in the cave across the street and everything and you know we weren't really supposed to but you know we'd sneak in sometimes yeah and,
1: your kids right
2: and do that yeah exactly um, and so I think those two things were very instrumental um, and just spending time in the great outdoors and in nature in our natural environment and there was just something that it appealed to us and it just really called and said, get out there and be one with nature. Yeah. So at what point
1: did you kind of, well, I don't want to say transition, but did you start, you know, really getting into the hunting side of things or the angling Mm -hmm. side of things?
2: Yeah. Um, as a kid, we fished every now and then, um, there was like some lakes and streams and things that like when my dad would take us sometimes, like we were all in Cub Scouts and, um, and I think some of my siblings were in Boy Scouts. I wasn't, uh so we did did that some. Um and so we would go to like friends' houses and go fishing and as we got older, probably in high school and maybe in college, we did more fishing. But it wasn't until um I think I was out of college when I started hunting and then I kinda brought everyone else into that fold. Okay. Um uh, my dad, he grew up in very rural Kentucky. Um he was in Vietnam and he grew up um he, he, they would hunt squirrels and you know, rabbits and things like that. Small and game. I, don't, yeah. I really like he really didn't hunt much after that um and so we never really grew up hunting that much um for me i mean i was always fascinated by tools by weapons um knives guns you know quality gear things like that and so i think out of college and i was married and i've just you know there was something that like i want to go hunt deer yeah so i had a friend that um had had some land and so uh, he was like yeah come over here. You can hunt here. And actually the first deer that I took was on his property. Um, and then fast forward a few years and I bought 50 acres. It was like my dream property. This is back in Kentucky. And I, you know, I'm like, I'm going to hunt it, you know, you yep. can hike, there's a stream on it. We can fish, uh, all of that stuff. And so it was, uh, we spent so much time there. And so we started doing, uh, an annual deer camp. So, uh, my background is I'm in the digital marketing space. Um, so I've, uh, I used to run a boutique digital marketing agency and so I had a client who uh, specialized in um, who's uh, a builder and specialized in log frame and uh, log home and timber frame construction. And so I'm like, I need a cabin why don't we trade out a little bit of work? Yeah. So I had to build this really rustic, like Appalachian style cabin on the property, you know, completely off grid, no electricity, no running water, um, like a 20 by 16 footprint. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, really small, a couple of lofts upstairs, wood burning stove. So we built a cabin on it. And so we've been having like an annual deer camp every year. So me and all my brothers and my dad and our sons and stuff, we come out there. And that's just really been instrumental in our love of of hunting and, and uh, being in nature in the fall.
1: Yeah, deer camp, especially, I mean, you were in Kentucky, you know, more in the South, but in the Midwest, man, that deer camp is, is kind of a sacred thing, right? With It's yes. almost like, you know, this rite of passage for, you know, for your kids or, you know, when you're, you know, maybe in those formidable years, you know, the the early teens and your dad brings you along and you got your grandpa, your uncles. Yep. You know, it sounds like, it, <clears throat> excuse me, exactly what you were just saying that kind of really shapes, you know, how you kind of view the outdoors, you know, the hunting world in general, and that connection that you're able to get, especially like you said, you know, no electricity, no running water, you know, you mm-hmm. guys, whatever you bring in is what you have. And, and that's totally. what, you, what you live off of for, you know, three, four days,
2: you know, long weekend, whatever the case is that you guys are going to be there for. Yeah, hundred oh, percent. And so some of the traditions that we've incorporated, um, when we first started doing this, um, and that probably would have been like 2015, I think, um, we, so, you know, the movie Escanaba in the moonlight. Sure. Yeah. So that's become one of our traditions. We all watch it like a few days before deer camp starts or sometimes we'll bring a computer out there and just download it and watch it there. And it's like the, the tradition that we have, we have to watch that movie and then we're quoting it the whole time. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll bring a bunch of Jägermeister and we'll drink that, but like while sitting around the fire at night and stuff like that. And, you know, it's the, it's the liquor of the hunter. And yeah. And, yeah. Um, And so we've just got, like, different traditions that we've uh, developed um, over the years. Um, Yeah, we pack in all of our water and our food and everything. And, you know, we've got a couple outhouses out there. Um, And so it's just so much fun. And I know I I can speak for everyone on this. We literally look forward to this every day of the year like the yeah. night before the opening of deer camp that friday evening and usually in kentucky anyway it's usually the second saturday in november is okay. when opening, opening day sometimes it's the first saturday just depending on how the season falls um but that night before it's like christmas eve um i mean it is you are so excited and just the anticipation of uh, being out there and hunting and spending time with family and friends and it, it's just an amazing experience i love it yeah, and I would imagine
1: because we spoke before we started recording here that you know you and at least the three brother the three brothers that are involved in the business are all spread out throughout the country. So I'd imagine yeah. that this is you know especially the way the world has been in the past you know year and a half that it's probably a, a just a good opportunity to catch up with each other. If you you know if it's been months since mm-hmm. you've been able to see each other, you know I don't know what the frequency is there. Yeah, but yeah, just yeah, there, you're right. There's like this air about going and, and and looking forward to it because you know we do the same thing uh, I do the same thing um, like with deer camp on my wife's side of the family where I mean we're not roughing it quite like you guys are because uh, they have like a, a like a, a cabin a second home kind of okay. that uh, has been in their family for a really long time so it's cool. a lot of uh, like my father-in-law and his brothers uh, my brothers, my brother-in-law's Uh, And yeah, I mean, some of the guys don't even hunt. They just like to be there for the camaraderie, you know, stay up late playing some poker, you know, drinking some beer and stuff like that. And then, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's funny because as the younger generation there with myself and my brothers, uh, my brother-in-laws is that we're always the first ones in bed and 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 all the the older guys are always the ones staying up late and drinking and giving us a hard time that we're we're going to bed too early and this and that but then again, we're the ones that are you know actually getting up and hunting in
2: the morning too yeah yeah no for sure and and typically everyone is hunting opening morning um not always so my son he uh he's almost fifteen and so last year like he's like I'm not hunting every morning, I'm sleeping in. So, you know, teenagers they don't wanna <laughs> wanna sleep in and stuff like that. But I mean, he got his first deer last year though. So, oh, so and this is this is one of the best experiences of my life as a as a parent, as a father. Um, just because it was, you know, the afternoon of I guess it would have been Saturday afternoon, um, or Sunday, I don't remember. And so he was in a stand, um, and I was in like this smaller, this old beater stand <laughs> about twenty yards away. And, you know, we hear kind of hear a deer pitter pattering from the backside coming around and it's this little buck and I'm like Tony psst, psst. <laughs> and, he, and he sees it and he lines up and takes a shot from about 40 yards and hit him in the heart it ran about you know 10 not too, yards yeah, not too far heeled over and uh, and knocked him down I mean you know it was, it was a small buck little um little four pointer or something and you know not one that I would prefer that is taken because we do a lot of um quality deer management and Mm -hmm. try to let them grow big and get big horns and i mean we're all about the meat but we also if we're gonna shoot a buck let them big yeah so but it was one of those things where i was just so proud of him Um, as a father you're just like so excited uh to see your son finally you know bring home the meat
1: yeah that's that's a that's a really cool thing to be able to to share i mean i recall you know my first year with my dad and just like Mm -hmm. you you know At the time, you don't realize it, but, you know, in hindsight, and you look back on the moment, you know, especially as I've gotten older and my dad has since passed, but, like, just like how proud they are. Like you kind of, yeah, you, you see it in kind of like, like I said, in hindsight, you know, just, they're just kind of beaming. They're just kind of taking a step back and just watching you like appreciate, you know, what just happened and like seeing how proud you are. And it's just, it, it's, it's one of those things. It's really hard to describe if you haven't been in that situation.
2: hundred percent. And to kind of bring it full circle there. So Two years ago, um, I helped my dad get his first deer. Okay. So, so because he had been coming out for a couple years, and then I put him in a stand that was really good, and I was I had the my, our my two sons like in a a big box blind kind of not too far but um, away, and so he was able to take his first uh, little buck as well. So it was like you know I t- my dad never raised us hunting. And so I didn't get to experience that with him getting my, my first one, but it was kind of cool just being on the other side and watching him get his first year. And so that was really cool as well.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's an awesome, excuse me, an awesome scenario. Anytime that, yeah, you're, you're part of that, that first harvest, whether it's, yeah, with your son or in this case with your dad, I mean, being able to share that experience kind of, you know, with both generations there is really, is really something cool and something that, you know, you can never take away from you guys and you guys will always have that experience with you.
2: Yeah, for sure. It's, it's And those are the bonding family moments. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things with our company, with Rewild Gear that we're trying to do, because our mission is to help uh, people, men specifically, to get back into nature, into the great outdoors and spend time with family and friends, because we have lost a lot of that wild side that you know, we're kind of born with, it's my belief, you know, as men, um, when we're younger, we have this fire in the belly. We have this wildness about us that we want to go and conquer the world and we can do anything. And then we kind of get domesticated um, (laughs) and kind of, you know, shot down because based on um, school, bills, work, bosses, just, you know, family, everything, just the normal domestication that happens. Not that it's all a bad thing at all. There's lots of good there too but we lose a little bit of our soul i think and the best way to find that is to get back out into nature into the wilderness and kind of and find that again rediscover it so that when we spend time with with family and friends in nature and disconnecting from you know our phones and technology and things that are dinging all the time when we come back into quote-unquote real life we become better husbands and fathers and business owners and employees and and all of those things because then we've been able to take a step back and focus on what's really important and then we can be more intentional about everything that we do.
1: Yeah, the... It does bring about this primal side of you that I think, yeah, for, you know, even a lot of hunters who are only able to hunt, you know, maybe, maybe it's deer camp, right? Maybe it's, you know, the one weekend a year where they get together, uh, or maybe it's, or, you know, maybe they're lucky enough to be able to, to hunt, you know, regularly throughout, you know, in this case deer season, but yeah, it does bring, it kind of unearths this primal side of you when you get into a tree stand Uh, especially you know like during archery season when everything is much closer quarters and you're just Mm -hmm. you're one and you're in their element you know that you're in their house so to speak and yeah it uh yeah it it, it heightens your senses you're hyper aware of everything uh you know from just you know adjusting in your tree stand just to get a little bit more comfortable you know the little creaks and cracks that come with that you know it's amazing the things that you see and that you hear when you just you just slow down, you just stop and you just are just aware and you're just paying attention to everything around you instead of your phone or, you know, what's, what's going on in the other room in the house or anything like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's so true because there's so many distractions uh, in today's world. There's so many things that are vying for our attention. And so it's really easy to just get so scattered and spread uh, that we lose a lot of that intentionality in our day-to-day lives. And I, Really feel that disconnecting and getting back to our very much our more primitive and primal roots. Uh, that's how we can reconnect with our soul, with who we are, and really focus in on the important things. And then we can be much more intentional in our day to day lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's that is a, a great way to look at it, and a great and a great approach uh, as well. So I want to shift gears a little bit here and, and kind of transition into, to talking about rewild gear. So yeah. I guess first tell me, tell me exactly what rewild gear is.
2: Mm-hmm. So rewild gear is an outdoor equipment company where we are, does we design and build and sell high quality, minimalistic um, outdoor equipment to help people spend more time in the great outdoors. So, um, uh, Myself and my brothers as well have the philosophy of quality over quantity. Yeah. You know, you buy once, you cry once. <laughs> better, better to buy the best and have it last forever than buy crap and, you know, have to rebuy it multiple times. You know, um, so part of the concept of creating this company, um, and, and I've I've owned multiple businesses over the years, um, online e-commerce and digital marketing and all kinds of things like that. Um, and a lot like in kind of the natural health space and things like that. However, whenever we, my brothers and myself, we would be camping, um, hiking, you know, at deer camp or wherever, uh, just sitting around the campfire, drinking coffee or bourbon or Jaeger or whatever, you know, we'd be talking about gear. What do you have? What kind of knife do you have on you? What do you like about it? What do you don't, how many knives do you have with you? Uh, And we'd just be comparing and just saying what we liked and what we didn't like. And the conversation that would inevitably happen was, okay, if you were going to design your own, what would it look like? What kind of steel? What would the features be? Um, How would it differ from what you already have? And so these conversations just happened organically. And knives were kind of the first one. But then it happened with all the different types of gear that you have when you're in, in the outdoors, whether that's a backpack or a water filter or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so we had always talked about, well, we should start our own knife company. You know, we should, we should make our own gear and sell it. But the timing was never right. You know, it's expensive. It's yeah. a lot of work. Um, and so over the years, I've been pretty successful in business, um, it, primarily focusing on natural health, um, which, is, which is great. Nothing wrong with that, but not necessarily my passion. Um, and so I had planned to start this company and really scratch my own itch of creating Really high-quality, minimalistic equipment, um, just for myself, for my, for my brothers, for my family, and anyone else who might be interested as well, but really to scratch your own itch. Um, but plan to do that in a few years down the road, uh, because I was launching a personal care line of products um, a couple years ago. So fast forward to last year, and COVID happens, and realizing life is short, we don't know what's going to happen, and the only thing people can do right now is go spend time outdoors so you know what there's no time like the present to do what you're passionate about and uh move the needle forward so i really started digging in on what would that take to to launch to get the products that we want so we started making a roadmap of the different products that we wanted to launch with we already had the domain already kind of had the idea for the branding and what we want to do wanted to call it um rewild gear and so uh the, a knife is the first product that that we're launching, and so the, the primary products. that so we have a, we have a knife, we have a fire starter, we have a backpacking grill, we have a utensil. We're working on a st- um, like a backpacking stove, some cookware, all very minimalistic and high quality equipment that everybody needs. So like our knife is made with S35VN steel. So we will the mean, all of steel go knife. Um, a fire starter. Everybody needs fire when they're in in the great outdoors. Yep. All the other equipment is um, we're making it with titanium because it's super strong um, and super lightweight, and so it appeals to so many different people. Whether you're a backpacker, a hunter, you know, just a general camper, um, a survivalist, bushcrafter, whatever. So that's kind of been our focus. And where we're, where we're headed with all of it. And so we officially incorporated last year and have been in the design phase and getting all of our branding and everything there. And the products are launching, um, in August. So coming out very soon within the next month.
1: Awesome. Well, that's exciting. Now, yeah, I think I just saw a post that you guys had on Instagram, (laughs) um, Gosh, I don't think it was too long ago. Probably within the last week, or even you know, less less time than that. But uh, the utensil, the the fork and spoon, um, yeah, that I thought looked super intriguing. Especially, I mean, yeah, it's lightweight. It serves multiple purposes, mm-hmm. and like you said, it's made out of titanium, so it, it's yep. going to be tough and durable and last. And that's one of the things that I think that people oftentimes overlook is. A utensil, right? It, it's something yes. so basic and simple, but you know, I think like if you're on like a backcountry hunt, you know, out west or something like that, and and you're living out of your pack, you know, you you've brought in whether it's you know your own freeze dried meals or you brought in a bunch of the prepackaged freeze dried, they just have to add water to. It. I mean, you need to stir it, you need to eat it with something, you know. Yep. You're not gonna be out there like a caveman just shoveling into your mouth with a hand with your hand. Yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. So that's our trail side utensil. And so this is a completely new design. Um, you know, most people, when they think of like a, uh, a backpacking utensil or something, they think a spork. Yeah. Who actually likes using a spork and how well does it work? Yeah. No, no. one. And it doesn't. <laughs> I exactly. Mean, we've all tried dozens of them and they just don't work. So I found a really cool design that I liked a lot. And it had a fork on one end and a spoon on the other. And I'm like, OK, that's a really cool design. Um, I didn't... It, The quality of it definitely left something to be desired. I'm like, well, we could do a better job of this. And so then we started thinking about it. How could we improve upon it? What would we do differently? Well, let's use titanium for one. Um, Let's make sure that it's really strong and it's really lightweight. And what if we enabled it so that it would fold down? So because then it's going to reduce the length and it'll fit into your – cookware your mess kit yeah Um, and so part of that when it folds down it has a little screw so that it um, can pivot and it also has a bottle opener there as well if you ever need that so it's a completely new design on just a basic utensil so it's got a fork on one end and a spoon on the other um, and also a a bottle opener and it packs really uh, really small and it's very lightweight and minimalistic so we're super excited about that
1: yeah so how is it that you guys had kind of determined at least in the initial offering of products you know which specific ones i mean i know you said you know you, you talked about the knife and that would seem to be you know one that you guys all kind of agreed upon like hey let's let's yeah. see what we can do for that so but as far as like the other products that you just mentioned yeah. you know how did you land on those ones
2: yeah um that was kind of um it was sort of an organic process. Um, I'm kind of a high vision thinker where I kind of start really up here and kind of look down the big strategy and say, what do we need? What are the, what are the bare minimums that someone needs to get into the outdoors? So part of this, it goes back to our philosophy of encouraging more people to get outside, especially those who have not They're Maybe they're not hunters. They're not campers, but we want to encourage people that um, they want to spend time outdoors, but they don't know where to start. So let's, let's make really high quality equipment and just the bare essentials that they would need. So, um, the knife, the knife was the first tool. It is the thing that everybody needs because you can make additional tools once you have the knife, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can whittle things down, you could carve a spoon. Um, you can start fire. There's so many things you can do with it. So the knife was a no brainer and is the thing that we're most passionate about. Uh, the name of the knife is the Gasper four. And that has a lot of meaning to, to us. The Gasper river is, um, this river that flows behind my property back in Kentucky. And my brothers and I, we grew up kayaking and canoeing and fishing on this river and then it backs on to where we hunt and so we decided let's call it the gasper and then Four, because there's four brothers that are involved with the company, and it has a four-inch blade. So it just made a whole lot of sense. Yeah, that's a super cool yeah. name. I like that. Yeah, a lot of meaning. Thanks. Um, yeah, so the utensil, you know, once everybody needs a utensil to eat. And whether you're you're hunting and you harvest some meat, you're fishing, you you catch some fish. Um, yeah, Sure, you can use your hands, but it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. The so, <laughs> so that made sense. Fire um, Fire starter. Fire changed civilization. Everybody needs fire. And so having a ferro rod, um, you know, ferro rods are a dime a dozen. Everybody's got one. And so everything that we try to do, we want to differentiate. How can we separate from company? For us, it's like, okay, everybody's typically using um, like a hardwood, like beech or oak or whatever for the handle. Well, that's not as sustainable. So let's use Bamboo super sustainable, you know, let's change the handle design. So it's more economic. So it fits in the hand better. It's easier to hold. You can use it longer. Um, you know, the, the, rods themselves are pretty standard. Um, you know, we tested a lot of different ones just to see what would work best as far as most sparks and works really good. And I feel like we really nailed that. Um, so, the, so the knife and the fire starter and the utensil, those are all seem very basic. And then we also have, um, we're working on a bellows as well. So like a collapsible bellows, because that really helps with the fire making process. Yeah. And this is one where anytime you start a business, there's going to be concessions you have to make. Right. And this is one of those where we cannot find a manufacturer that either in the U.S. or abroad who can make it in titanium. So uh-huh. unfortunately, we have to use stainless steel for that, um, which is unfortunate. But even that we're innovating as far as having a mouthpiece and a lanyard hole and just the the sizing and the way that works. Okay. So what does the design process
1: look like? I mean, are you guys essentially coming up with like a concept, whether it's like a sketch or if someone, you know, between the four of you, one of you has, you know, some type of design experience and then you're, you know, passing it off to, you know, someone who may be able to like manufacture a prototype and then just kind of refining it from there. What does that whole process look like?
2: Yeah. It's been, uh, it depends on the product really. So we all had, we had ideas about the products we wanted to go with and what was out there on the market already companies that we liked, but we knew we could improve upon. So we already kind of came up with our own ideas, but then there's a big difference between you have an idea in your head, you're kind of writing it out or sketching it out on paper to getting it into CAD and passing that off to a manufacturer. Right. Um, so I've hired an industrial designer who that's his specialty. And so he has handled the majority of that process. Okay. Um, But, and he's had some great ideas, things that we hadn't thought about as well. But for the most part, it's based on our own ideas, our own concepts, and just discussing and testing and trying out different gear to see what works and how could it be improved upon.
1: Yeah.
2: Um. An example of this where we already had an idea, so our grill, our granite grill that's coming out. So this is a um, 17, 18 inch long backpacking grill that has um, vertical stays. So you just put it over, over some um, about 18 inches long by seven inches wide. And so it, it you set it over coals or rocks or whatever and then you can grill your meat or fish or wh- anything on top of it. Um, and you know, there's a couple out there that do a pretty good job, lightweight, manned titanium the problem that we saw was that, okay, it's really easy for things to fall through if they're not big. So unless you have big chunks of meat or fish, um, if you're grilling vegetables or anything or smaller chunks, they're going to fall through. So our designer, he's like, well, what if we did some cross pieces there? Um, like on one end. So you have like, um, more surface area where it's not going to fall through. like, Oh, it's a great idea. So we're looking at it and like, okay, well, instead of putting it on the end, what if we do it in the middle? Because that's going to increase the tensile strength of the grill as well. So instead of just having the vertical um, the vertical pieces, now we have cross pieces as well. So it gives a little more surface area for cooking there. Uh, and it's still super lightweight because it's made of titanium. It'll fit in a backpack. It can go anywhere. doesn't have legs or anything. So, you know, get some rocks or, or some wood or whatever and put it there. And so it works great. So it was kind of one of those organic processes yeah. where we uh, just kind of iterated and um, improved upon it.
1: Nice. So where did the name rewild gear come from? I feel feel like you've kind of alluded to it throughout, you know, some of your explanations, but why don't you go ahead and tell us?
2: Yeah. So part of the, so to rewild, it means to get back to a more natural state or to, to change something that was at one time a very primitive environment or state and has become kind of domesticated or urbanized and to kind of revert it back there. And that's kind of our philosophy as far as for getting people into nature and to the great outdoors. To rewild themselves, to um, reconnect with that wild um, primal state that we were born with. Yeah. and so just we tossed around a lot of different names and ideas, and like, huh, that concept is great. And you know the the rewilding concept, I mean, the most famous example is the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone and how it changed, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yep. it changed you know the entire ecosystem there. And so it just made sense to use that name. And so we incorporated a wolf into our logo, just realizing, hey, that was the first kind of rewilding concept in the modern age, or the way we think about it. And so, so let's run with that. Um, and so our our goal is with it is to help people to rewild themselves and nature as well, and that's where the conservation side comes into play
1: yeah so let's <clears throat> let's talk about the the conservation side of things because you had mentioned uh obviously or again before we started recording about you know each brother and kind of their specific role um, and then obviously one of the reasons we're able to hop on this podcast is because Rewild Gear is two percent certified, so let's kind of first start there. so tell me how was it that you guys kind of first learned
2: about two percent? Uh, That's a great question. Um, When we decided to launch the company, I realized that we wanted to make a difference, both for people and for the natural environment, because unless we take care of the earth, of Mother Nature, um, we're screwed. And this goes back to my prior experience kind of in the natural health space and realizing that we are polluting and destroying, destroying our world. Um, there are so many toxins and every we're ruining our soil and our waterways. I'm like, okay, if we're going to do this, we have to do it for the right reasons and not just, I mean, we want to scratch our own niche itch as far as creating high quality gear. Um, and we want to help people as far as better relationships and things like that. But we also want to make the world a better place. Um, and, and so just realizing that there's so many avenues that you can go to do that. And by when you get people into nature, they can learn and appreciate it. And then they're more likely to go back and help take care of it and not litter, not pollute, you know, not throw crap into the waterway into, into our waterways and things like that. Um, and so, just focusing on all of all of those aspects is just instrumental to who we are, and our our ethos as a company and as people.
1: Yeah. Now, would you say like the I guess let's call it the the conservation mindset, right? And and kind of you know one of the the goals of of Rewild Gear. I mean, was that something that you think was instilled at a young age, or is it you know as you got older, you got more involved in the outdoors, and you kind of understood the bigger picture is when things kind of really started to click and you really started to understand, you know, I guess the effect that we as, as humans have on the
2: natural, the natural world. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And I think it's a little of both. So from an early age, just the way we were raised, uh, was that you take care of things, Mm -hmm. you know, you, we want to be good stewards of the land of of everything that we've been given, you know, this is the only world, only earth we've got, so we gotta take care of it. Right. Um I've had conversations with friends of where they grew up just, you know, they're sitting on the banks of a river fishing, they're eating a candy bar or whatever, and they're throwing it in the water. Oh, it'll just it'll go somewhere, whatever. And I'm yeah. like, I don't get that. Like I've I was <laughs> never raised like that. You just don't don't do that. Um, But as I've gotten older and got really deep into kind of the natural health space and just realizing the amount of like how bad our soil is because of all the roundup um, and just the pollution and the, the big ag and everything that has happened to our soil and how it's depleting the amount of nutrients. Uh, in our soil is so much less now, and so our food supply is so much worse. Um, our water quality is terrible. All the the nanoparticles and toxins that are in there from all the single use plastic and mm-hmm. um, the birth control that has ended up in the water supply, and the amount of soy and everything that is increasing estrogen in all of us, which is reducing testosterone. Which is uh, you know it, it's just this big circle of things that is affecting everything in our health and everything that we do and our outlook and our mental states. So it's something that we all have to be cognizant of and just, you know, be more intentional about what we do and whether that is recycling, whether that's reusing or reducing what we're doing. Um, simple things like everyone should have a compost bin, you know, in their backyard, you know, make a little garden for yourself and grow some of your own food and not just go to the store where it's probably not organic and is not as healthy and the nutrient level is so much less.
1: Yeah. I feel like that, um, the, you know, teaching, especially like the younger generation, you know, teaching them about conservation kind of as a whole can be a bit difficult. Like if you're trying to just, you know, if, if it's a young kid, you know, whether they're 5, 10, 12 years old, mm-hmm. explaining to them, you know, this is what conservation is and this is why we should do this. As opposed, I, I think it's almost a, a better route to kind of show them, you know, and mm-hmm. teach them kind of just the basic principles of it. And then that's yeah. something that I feel like, especially at that age, you know, I mean, kids are a sponge, you know, when when they're young and it's amazing the things that they're retaining when you don't even think they're paying attention, right? So, yes. if you know, if your kid sees you throw a wrapper on the ground or, you know, a bottle out the window in your truck or something mm-hmm. like that, I mean, then they're going to think that that's okay. But if you're, if they're seeing you throw stuff away, recycling, you know, saying, you know, just little things like, oh, that's, you know, whether you, let's talk about food waste, which is astronomical, right? It's crazy. Yep. Um, you know, you know, eat that, you know, finish, finish your what you have on your plate before you decide to get more and you're not going to eat yep. that. You know, it's, it's amazing the things that if you can just kind of show them that they're going to start to mimic because we all know that kids tend to mimic their parents or, or grandparents or whoever they're spending, you know, a lot of their time with. So if they're seeing uh, a good example set forth, they're, you know, much more likely to, to reciprocate, uh, you know, those acts as opposed to saying, Hey, don't throw that away because that's not what we do. It's like, eh, okay. Well, that's what he said. You know, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want to do anyway.
2: 100%. I agree. And that's something I've tried to do with my own children is just set a good example for them. Um, and, you know, not wasting, you know, finishing the food that's on your plate and you know, okay, well, if you're not gonna eat it now, then you'll eat it later before you get yeah. dessert or something, you know, don't, don't waste. Um, I think that's really important. And it's the little things. It's because when we look at the problems in our world today, when it comes to the environment um, and everything surrounding all of that, it, we can't make a difference beca- as much as we'd like, you know, because you've got massive companies that are causing a lot of the pollution and um and harming our soil based on their, uh, their agricultural practices and things like that. But we can on a micro level. And the more we do this and it builds up a groundswell, the more we can affect You know, I think it was Tip O'Neill that said all politics is local. And so, um, I don't think of this as politics at all, but it's like any influence that we have, it's going to be, local, right? Mm-hmm. So with our our families, with our circle of influence, with our friends and just setting a good example, like you mentioned, um, and that will hopefully help create a change, a groundswell that will get bigger and bigger. And then there'll be enough demand that it will make change on a, on a macro level.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, it, it's funny that you kind of mention it or, or, or kind of position it that way. Cause that's one of the, I, I say that at the end of, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of every podcast where I say, you know, conservation starts with you. Right. I mean, you have yes. to you have to make those, whether it's small changes in your life, big changes mm-hmm. in your life to, to do the right thing. Whatever the case is, it starts it starts at home, like it starts, you know, at at the basement level of things. And you just you just yeah. try to yeah, like you said, create that groundswell and and hope that people that you're spending your time with are, are noticing and want to do the same things because, you know, they they realize the the positive impact of what you're doing has, you know, for the betterment of everything.
2: Yeah, oh, for sure. As humans, I think we're very selfish at yeah. times. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that, we, we live in such a microwave culture and society. We want everything right now. And we're not thinking long term. We just want it instantaneously, um, you know, whatever whether that's food or or whatever. We want it right now. And we don't want to wait long term. or think about the long term consequences. And that's why people pollute, why we would rather have, you know, Something right now, as opposed to waiting, and the quality might be better if we wait. Um, for as an example, think about historically and anthropologically, you're in Michigan, mm-hmm. you couldn't have strawberries in December, right? Right. They won't grow. We have them now. So, but were we actually designed to eat those? I mean, in December? If you grow up in Michigan or somewhere in the north, probably not. Someone who's like in Florida, yes, but probably so it's very different. So we want everything right now. But in order to keep those and ship them, you got to add a preservative of some type. You have to do something and you're losing some nutrient value. Yeah, to so we get the back... state of it. Exactly, it's not its natural state, um, and part of that selfishness that we've seen over the years, as far as the change in um, just within the geography and plant, the flora and the fauna, plants and animals. Where I mean, think about how we wiped out almost the majority of the bison. You know, they go from what thirty to eighty million bison that used to roam in the Midwest, and now there's like what less than hundred thousand now. I think yeah. something like that. So yeah, I'm trying to bring this back. Very small number, right? Yeah, it's crazy, and that had a drastic impact on the soil quality. Um, which affected everything, our food supply and so many other things. Um, One of the things that we always try to focus on as a company and just as individuals, I don't even want to say a company because we've been doing this for years, even before we started Rewild Gear. So when we're at my property in Kentucky, um, it's been owned by multiple people over the years. There's trash out there, you know people have littered and whether that is just a plastic bottle or a beer can or even like Metal appliances Mm -hmm. whenever we're out there We walk around and we clean up and then we you know put it in the trash and take it to the dump or try to recycle it or whatever We can Um, I'm in Florida. I go for a walk on the beach I bring a plastic bag and pick up trash and it's not even people are trying to litter It's just they're there on vacation or with their kids and people are leaving things and you know these single-use plastics that end up in the water and that are affecting all of us. And so it's just taking personal responsibility and looking out for the long term, both for ourselves, for our families, and for society and the world at large. Yeah.
1: And you made a good point there, <clears throat> talking about how everyone kind of wants everything, whatever it is that they want, they want it right now, right? Like everyone's thinking extremely short term. Um, and that's that's kind of the the hard thing for some people to grasp about conservation is because conservation is like the ultimate long game, right? I mean, yep. because... You're doing things, and I've heard plenty of stories about people who have participated in, you know, helping restore a population of something that, like, like let's say um, I, I I had a gentleman on who was, uh, it may have been Jared, actually, from 2%, was telling a story about some people in Wisconsin who were helping uh, bring, bring back the elk habitat there. You know, something that yeah. is going to be years and years in the making. And these individuals who are volunteering their time are never going to see the fruits of of their labor, right. They're never going to have a chance to hunt elk in Wisconsin. They're never, you know, going to be able to, you know, really participate, but they're, they're looking at the long, the long game. They're looking at, you know, maybe two or three generations from now, and maybe, you know, their great grandkids are going to be able to go out and, and at least have a chance to hunt elk in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. So to, to, to try to explain to someone, you know, why you're doing something for, you know, in the name of conservation and why you're. You know, approaching something in in a specific way can can be a bit difficult, especially for the younger generation to grasp, because they haven't you know seen the effects of the previous thirty years and, and all the damage that has been do- has been done, and you know where a population maybe once was and, and where it's at now, like you know, like turkeys is a great example, you know, like everyone sees turkeys right now and they're just like, oh yeah, turkeys are everywhere. Well, that, you know, that wasn't always the case, you know, and the same, you know, the same with bison and, you know, white-tailed deer at one point was, you know, severely low in numbers. And now it's like, you know, especially here in Michigan and, and this time <laughs> of year with fawns and everything like that, and, and just kind of really starting to, to venture out. I mean, you see, you know, roadkill all the time in Michigan, right? And yeah. people just with whitetail specifically, they just uh, yeah, deer are everywhere, deer are everywhere. Well, you know that hasn't always been the case. There's been a lot of, you know, hard work and, and you know boots on the ground and scientific studies and things like that to to help get the population to where it's where it's at now.
2: Yeah. No, that's that's a great point, point. Um, and that's something that I've wrestled with as well as far as because it goes in cycles and mm-hmm. in different areas where. Uh, historically where there would have been a range of elk or whitetail or turkey or bison or whatever the case may be. And so we try, or wolves, you know, we try to bring some of these back, but at the same time, the landscape isn't the same, you know? And so maybe it's a good thing or maybe it's a bad thing that we're bringing some of these back. And I don't have an answer. Like I want to think it's a good thing, but then there's part of me is like, okay, are they going to be able to survive? What is the carrying capacity? Because the thing that when it comes to conservation that we look at, especially when it comes to public lands and things like that, which is hugely important, and I'm a big supporter of that, the, the thing that I see that seems to be infringing upon this is urban sprawl, because we just keep pushing out and pushing out. But even like the mission of Rewild, of what we're trying to do to get more people in the great outdoors. That can be very inspirational and so people often and especially after last year where people want to get away from the big cities and spend more time outdoors but what does that do that's great on a philosophical level and it's their pro their life is probably becoming better because of it they're getting in touch with nature and spending more time with family however maybe they're building a house that's further out more people are doing that things are spreading further and further which is decreasing the animal habitat and so there are, you know, it's a cause and effect relationship and there's unintended consequences here. Yeah. And I don't know where the solution there is.
1: Yeah, that's that's a, a, a great question that yeah, I don't know that anyone has the answer to that. Right. It's yeah. because it's you're, you're seeing, you know, growth in the population. And like you said, we can't add land. So yeah. where where's everyone going to go? Right. What are we yeah. going to do? And. If, if we've learned one thing in, like you just said, the past year and a half, it's that when people are, you know, forced to to stay inside or to, to social distance, I mean, people, I mean, look at all the, the sporting goods companies, the outdoor companies who couldn't keep, you know, any gear in stock for, you yep. know, for the past, you know, 18 months because, you know, there was all this, this influx of people who either, wanted to, to get into the outdoors, who wanted to reconnect with the outdoors, who just, or, you know, if you had your, you know, an avid outdoorsman or outdoors woman who just wanted to spend mm-hmm. more time, well, now they're buying more gear and things yep. like that. And there just became this, this shortage of any type of gear to, to allow you, uh, to get outside. I mean, I've had people on, um, who make like a, like backpacking meals, right. And, mm-hmm. you know, they can't keep things in stock. I mean, they're, you know, they're saying I had someone on or someone that I spoke to the other day. Uh, that'll be a future episode. Who makes backpacking, you know, meals? And they're like, you know, anything that's coming off our production line for the next, you know, six weeks is already spoken for. You know, I mean, wow, that's, that's a crazy. I mean, it's it's a good problem to have for them, but it also is, you know, it's just this this
2: same problem that you're seeing kind of across the landscape of outdoors. Yeah, no, that's really true. Um, something else I'd like to add within there, um, going back to kind of the selfishness idea which is just going to affect that in a positive way. Um, Over the years that we've seen where people will bring in plants and animals to an area where they never were before and how that's affecting things. The example of this that I like to use is kudzu. Are you familiar with the kudzu vine? I'm not. Okay, so kudzu, K-U-D-Z-U, it was originally like a small plant, um, a small vine from, I think, Japan. And so I don't know, 50 years ago or whatever, someone brought it over. And in Japan, it grows small. It's not a big thing. Well, in the South, it takes over and destroys everything. Um, so if you're in Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, it you'll be driving on the interstate, and it just takes over and chokes out everything, all the trees, all the plants. Uh, great snake habitat, which might not be a good thing necessarily. Another example of that is all the anacondas in South Florida. So people had them as pets, and then they got too big, and so they let them go into the Everglades. Guess what? They're growing massive in the Everglades. We're talking 20 feet. And so they are eating all the other animals. There's practically no deer left, all the rabbits, everything, because they don't have any natural predators. Right. And so when we go and, you know, we don't think about those unintended consequences that happen and because nature isn't in a vacuum. And so when those happen, it's affecting things in so many different ways that we have no idea about. And yeah. I don't know how you fix that either.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, just kind of looking at that in kind of a broad spectrum, I mean, it's people a lot smarter than me that that need to hopefully help come up with, with some type of solution. You're right. And, and I don't know that, that there is just because, you know, the, the the amount of people that are doing the research or that can hopefully positively affect change – is yep. far less than the people actually
2: causing the change, you know? Yeah. You know, the American chestnut is another great example of that. We had so many American chestnut trees, you know, for centuries. And then the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, when there was a Japanese chest. I think it was a Japanese chestnut tree, that was brought over. And so it... Um, Some type of bacteria that affected all the American chestnut trees and it practically destroyed all of them And so there I've been reading up on this a little bit. And so they're trying to genetically modify um, The chestnut so that it takes a very small percentage of the Japanese chestnut combined with the American chestnut tree And so it's resistant to that blight or that fungus whatever it was that Mm -hmm. killed it and but we're not sure if that'll work or not and what are the effects of that because if you're you're genetically modifying an organism which in a natural state that would not happen. I mean, you know, you're going to see cross pollination and things like that, right. but, but that's kind of a natural and organic way of something happened, but not artificially doing it. Right. I don't know. I think sometimes we, we worship science too much. Like just because we can do it, that doesn't mean that we should. Right. Because no, we absolutely. don't know. And that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. The unknown,
1: especially. Yeah. Is the unknown can be scary. Uh, especially when you put it in terms like that, when you start, you know, making hybrids of things that normally, or the likelihood of of that hybrid coming to fruition in wild is is very low, right? And then you yes. you produce it at a mass scale, and yeah, there's there's no way to to know what the the consequences or what the outcome is going to be.
2: Yes, totally. And I know some countries and states they're doing a lot more uh, to make sure that uh, types of Whether that's fruits and vegetables or uh, plants or things are not being brought in there where it could affect that. Mm -hmm. Hawaii is a good example of that. So I went on a hunt in Hawaii a few years ago and they're like, you can't bring in any type of uh, plants or fruit or meat or anything like that because they're worried about uh, it contaminating theirs and having such a negative effect and for good reason.
1: Yeah, I remember my wife and I went on our honeymoon to Hawaii. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is, you know, eight, eight, nine years ago, something like that. I should know that off the top of my head, but, uh, uh, yeah, when, when you're in the plane and you're, you know, you're, you're in your final descent there, you have to fill out the, yeah, this little card that says, you know, are you bringing anything in like fruits and vegetables, just like you said. And, and yeah, that's, that was something I'm like, I, I I was not, uh, really sure at the time, you know, why I was having to do that, but you know, it, it makes total sense. Like as you, as you learn more about, you know, conservation and, and things like that.
2: Yeah. Um. Another example of that. So Arizona used to be known as a state that there were really no allergies. Uh, so like on the East coast, a lot of people have allergies. There's the seasonality, the pollen, you know, mm-hmm. when everything's blooming and all that, but Arizona is so dry and arid that you could go there and anybody that was normally affected by allergies on the East coast didn't happen there, but that's changed. Part of the reason so many people have moved there and they brought their plants with them mm-hmm. that it's affecting and changing Just blooming a longer thing. And it's, you know, we just get into these ruts of like, okay, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to do, but not thinking about what are the consequences of those actions? What are the unintended consequences of those actions and how might they affect not just me, but everyone else. And I don't think it's an intentional thing or maybe even being that selfish. It's just like, we don't think that far ahead because we're so focused on, you know, our phones and social media and what we're trying to do just, you know, living life or providing for our family and things like that, that we lose, lose sight of the bigger picture things and how that affects everything.
1: Yeah. So now with rewild gear and being 2%
2: certified, what are some of the organizations that you guys are, are working with or giving back to? Yep. So we're doing a lot of local things right now. Um, we are, um, and my, my brother, Joshua is hand, he's handling our, the conservation side of the company. Um, we are digging into a lot of different companies that we want to support because there's so many things there's, there's so many aspects and avenues that we can go. Mm-hmm. And so because our mission isn't, you know, if we were just a hunting company focusing on public lands and things like that it would make sense. If we were a fishing company, waterways, um, you know, if we were more like like a food company focusing on our soil and things like that. But we see a need in all of this. So we're trying to keep it local as much as possible and working with like local um, co-ops and and people that are doing things in the local area to focus on maybe that's composting. and setting up like a community compost mm-hmm. area, Um cleaning up waterways like so back in kentucky we're um we're uh trying to work with an organization that focuses on on doing that um so so there's several areas that we are and we're trying to find other organizations that we can align ourselves with um much more officially um that kind of fits our values and our ethos and that is not doesn't get too political about everything and just Because I mean, to me, it's like once you get into that realm and yeah, they can do some good, but then it's like the dollars that you're putting in, it's going to lobbyists and other things as opposed to actually making a difference.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the nice things about supporting local organizations is that, and that's something that I've realized with my company. And as I, have you know, started to make, you know, donations and started to become, mm-hmm. you know, more involved with, with, uh, conservation organizations is I like to keep uh, the money as local as possible that I'm donating yep. because there's one um, you can get a much better feel for where the money's going you know I mean and, and don't get me wrong like these these big national organizations like you know RMEF BHA are, are great organizations for what they're doing and what their mission is but if you donate to them you know maybe that's just going to overhead right maybe that's if there's some yeah. salaried employees it's it's going to to fund that But with these local organizations, you can you can talk to someone and say, you know, hey, what are you working on? You know, what are some of the projects you have going on? Okay, I want to make a donation, but I want it to go. You know, I want it to be earmarked for this particular thing. (laughs) And that way, you know what the money is being spent on. I mean, these again, these big organizations, I mean, they need that money to to help further their mission. and, And I understand that. But. For, for me personally, and one thing that I, I I really like to do is find out exactly, you know, where that money is going to be going so that it's 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 being put to good use. You know, it's the reason why I want to help, you know, whether it's like the Michigan chapter of the National Deer Association or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the local branch of the National Wildlife Federation, something like that. And, yeah. you know, those are just a couple that I've worked with here in Michigan. Um but you know, there, and that's where I'm spending all of my time for the most part, recreating is, is here in the Mm -hmm. state of Michigan, right? So I want to make sure that if I'm taking from the land here in Michigan and I'm spending my time here, that I'm doing all that I can to, to get back to those same resources that I'm taking from.
2: Yeah, totally agree. That's so important. And just trying to find those companies or those organizations that are doing the best job and that you can really align yourself with and that kind of Um, aligns with your values and the goals you're trying to accomplish. So important. Yeah. So a few
1: more things here, Seth, before I let you go. So do you guys have any kind of projects or anything like that, that you're kind of working on or that you guys are excited about within like the conservation world or with some other uh, businesses or organizations that you're looking to work with?
2: Yeah, not yet. That is something that we are are digging into, because since we have not launched our products yet, the focus has been just getting to launch and actually bringing in some cash as opposed to just all Pushing out there it out, right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> since, since you know, we are a startup and we're so new. Um, so so no, not yet. But if you have any suggestions there, I'm definitely all ears, because that is something that we really want to focus more of our efforts on, for yeah. sure. Well, I think you guys
1: are definitely... Uh, taking the right first step and looking locally, you know, and trying to partner with those organizations because, you know, if, if there's areas, you know, like Kentucky where, you know, you a lot of you guys cut your teeth in the outdoors and where you're spending your deer camp and things like that, I mean, yeah, that's that's where you want your money to go. So I think you guys are definitely on the right track there. Yeah, totally. Thank you.
2: It's, yeah, it's a process for sure. And, you know, just doing the due diligence to make sure that uh, that the organizations that we want to work with, that they're where the money's going and they're actually doing what they say they are.
1: Yeah, yeah. So one more thing here, Seth, before I let you go, and I always kind of like to ask my guests, this is, you know, we're, we're kind of right on the cusp of, you know, um, hunting season, let's call it with, with the fall, especially, you know, some of the Western States, you know, uh, I think you can start hunting, you know, antelope, you know, mid August, something like that. So do you have any like big trips
2: or, or anything like that that you're excited for this year? Um, yeah, so we are as a company. Um, we are going to be doing a big backpacking trip in Montana in about three weeks, four okay. weeks. It's the end end of August. Um, my buddy Jordan uh, Reasoner, he runs an organization. Um, he leads guys in the great outdoors and takes them on backpack extended backcountry uh, backpacking trips uh, called the Wilderness Event. And so usually like business owners and people that um, they want to disconnect and from normal everyday life and reconnect with nature so we're uh we're doing that as kind of a company retreat nice and just kind of as a kickoff so that that's coming up and then i put in for um several states out west for elk and um uh elk and mule deer and some things like that and Multiple states and was not selected, so um, you know it's the way it goes. Yeah. So I'm looking at potentially doing like an over-the-counter hunt in Colorado for that's elk, right. uh, but the, nothing is set in stone yet.
1: Yeah. well, no, that's uh, that's exciting. I mean that that extended backpacking trip. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of goes back to what you touched on earlier um, with you know the name of the company and just getting more people outdoors and disconnecting and kind of recharging the batteries. So no, that sounds like a pretty cool trip and, and to have it. You know, be guided and with someone who's you know familiar with with the terrain and with the area mm-hmm. um, to be able to kind of you know walk you oh not maybe not walk you through it but just you know make the experience that much more enjoyable. You know, when you have someone who's yes. who's a bit more familiar with uh, mm-hmm. with the landscape. No, that sounds like an awesome trip
2: yeah really excited about that and originally we were supposed to do it back in may and then it got snowed out uh-huh. they had one of those freak snowstorms where it was like waist deep and like uh we're just going to be camping in you know three feet of snow yeah. for a week um that's not going to be that much fun right now since we're not hunting or anything it's just you know backpacking so yeah. this is going to be um, this will be more like a high country fly fishing trip as well as backpacking perfect so
1: yeah it's going to be fun no that's <clears throat> anytime you can you can get out on the water with a fly rod man i mean that's that's oh yeah that's a great time i was actually able uh when i was uh corresponding with you over the last couple days Mm -hmm. uh, i was uh up in northern michigan uh with some family Mm -hmm. we have a a place up there and yeah actually doing some fly fishing myself so yeah Uh, oh nice yeah i'm jealous that you're getting out west to be able to do some of that
2: yeah, really excited. And the fun thing is we're gonna get to test out all of our gear and get some great pictures and everything for social media and for the website and all of that stuff. So especially the grill, like our granite grill. I'm really excited to use that, you know, grilling up some trout over it. So that'll be that'll be fun. Yeah, put the stuff through the paces. No, that'll be
1: really cool. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, Seth, this was uh, awesome, man. I really enjoyed talking to you Inc, and hearing, obviously, more about your journey into the outdoors, you know, rewild gear, what you guys have going, you know, the outlook uh, that you guys have for conservation in the natural <laughs> world. is it, it was awesome, and I really enjoyed it, man.
2: Thank you. Me too. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Well, take care of yourself, and uh, we will look for those products to launch here uh, next month.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, right. Marcus.
1: Take care. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, big thank you to Seth for taking some time to join the podcast this week. I'd also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Go Hunt and Stone Glacier, as well as Wild Rivers Coffee Co. Uh, please be sure to support the brands that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, I would also like to thank 2% for Conservation, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands, including Rewild Gear, that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. Uh, I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media, where they're going to post only positive, conservation-driven content Content, so you will enjoy that uh, in your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, or check them out on social media. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you.